Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Our current series of signposts is working its way through the book of Amos and so today I want to just read Amos chapter 3. Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? Does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground when there is no bait there? Does a trap spring up from the ground if it has not caught anything? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the Sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. Hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel, the horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Pretty hard word there uh, for, uh, for us to take today. Well, uh, Romans 8 and 31 is one of the best loved verses of the New Testament. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's been a tremendous encouragement to Christians throughout the ages, especially when they've faced opposition and trials. But Amos 3 presents us with a real mirror image of that text because it really prompts the question, if God is against us, who can be for us? It's likely that upon hearing Amos's message, some of his audience would have taken issue with him, for on the face of it, Israel was a strong and wealthy nation. The nation's fortresses were solid and, in their view, unassailable, impregnable. It's also likely that they assumed, as many people do, that since they were experiencing peace and prosperity, these things were surely a sign of God's blessing, and if God was blessing them, why would he then threaten to destroy them? 
We should note here that up to this point, Amos has dealt with Judah and Israel as separate kingdoms. But from this point, he will speak to them collectively as the people of God, the whole family of God brought up out of Egypt. The first thing we see in his message is that God's judgment is fair. The opening phrase, hear this word that the Lord has spoken, is not simply an introduction to what follows, rather it's a fundamental part of the message itself. It's intended to remind people of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the central prayer of Israel's faith that highlights the fact that God the Lord should be central in their lives. It's Israel's failure to live with God at the centre that's brought about this judgment. And there were enough hints in that opening statement to alert the people as to why they were being judged. But they probably, I think, would have argued with Amos. After all, they were the people of God. Surely God would not judge them as he judged the pagan nations. However, the first two verses illustrate that God's judgment against them is fair. And that is highlighted by two key words in verse 2, where God says that he has known them and that he will punish them. The phrase, you only have I known, carries much more than the sense that God has known about them. Rather, it speaks about an intimate relationship. It's used in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1 to describe the sexual intimacy between Adam and Eve. It's a word that refers to the intimate relationship between two people who are in a covenant relationship with one another. So what God is saying here is that of all the nations of the earth, Israel is the only nation with whom whom he is in an intimate and covenantal relationship. At first glance, it seems odd then that God goes on to say he'll punish the people with whom he's in that covenant relationship. But the word translated as punish can also be translated as visit. And it's used in a significant way in Genesis 50, verses 24 and 25, where Joseph uses the term as he's dying, assuring his family that God will visit them and take them to the promised land. A clear reference to the Exodus. Here in Amos, uh, the word is turned on its head. God is going to reverse the Exodus and send his people into exile. The judgment of God upon them does not mean that God has broken his covenant with them. Rather, they have broken their covenant with God. And so God is just and fair to punish them within the terms of the covenant to which they agreed. We also see in verses 3 to 8 that God's judgment is inevitable. From verse 3, God asks the people a series of rhetorical questions as a way of forcing them to engage with issues which have brought about their judgment. The questions illustrate what the people ought to have known, that every effect has a cause. For example, lions roar because they're attacking their prey. The attack is the cause and the roar is the effect. In the same way, a bird doesn't get caught in a trap unless someone has set it. We all know from nature that certain sequences of events lead to predictable outcomes. So the people ought to have known what the outcome of their behaviour would have been. They knew the law, they knew the covenant and its terms. God has not denied the special status of Israel as his people chosen from all the families of the earth. But as the people appear to have forgotten, that special status carried with it a special responsibility. 
As God's people, they were meant to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a light to the Gentiles. Like Abraham, they were to walk before God and be blameless. And the word walk is used widely in the Bible to refer to a way of living. And they were warned that their special status as God's people was not a guarantee that they would be free from judgment, like a get-out-of-jail-free card. When the people worshipped a golden calf, God said he was merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but who will by no means clear the guilty. It's good to be reminded of the steadfast love and mercy of God. We want to be reminded of it. But we are idiots to think that if we keep on sinning deliberately and willfully, knowing the wrong that we do, and then imagine that God will do nothing just because we're in a special relationship with him, really, it's it's foolishness. And it's foolishness that we are all prone to from time to time. The first question in particular picks up the theme of two people in relationship together. The verb used is in the imperfect tense that suggests not an occasional walk, but rather a habitual activity. And as I say, the concept of walking is often used in the Bible as a metaphor for life. And so what is meant here is that Israel ought to have lived in an ongoing daily relationship with God, but instead their relationship has been more of an on-off kind of deal. The people had remained faithful when it suited them, but when the opportunity presented itself, they went their own way, worshipping uh, the gods of the nations and copying the behaviour of the surrounding nations. The Bible is right to say that we all, like sheep, have gone our own way. Judgment was the predictable and inevitable consequence of their actions and their violation of the covenant that they had agreed to. Yet there is still hope. Notice that in verse 7 we learn that God does nothing without revealing it to his servants, the prophets. And we noted at the beginning of this series of signposts that the role of the prophet was not simply to announce judgment, but to call the people back to faithfulness to the covenant. God does not just destroy cities or nations on a whim. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but instead desires rather that they would turn from their evil ways, that they would turn to him. Jonah would be a good example of this. He was sent to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians, Israel's most hated enemies, a wicked, cruel, evil, pagan people. But God sent his prophet to warn them of his judgment so that they would repent of their evil ways and not be destroyed. God is merciful. God longs for us to be restored to a right relationship with him. And so he gives us that opportunity to repent, a word that means to turn around. You know, you're going in that direction, God says, and that direction is going to lead to judgment. Turn around now and come back to me. The greatest example of this principle, of course, is the person of Jesus. John tells us in his gospel that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world, but to save it. But does that mean that the wicked will be spared? No, actually, it does not. 
Those who are saved are saved through Jesus. If you don't pledge your allegiance to him as the saving king, living in obedience to his commands, then you condemn yourself. God's mercy uh, in uh, excuse me <coughs> God's mercy in Jesus provides a means of escaping the coming judgment, but it doesn't remove the coming judgment. The seemingly harsh prophecy of Amos then is actually God through his prophet providing a means of escape and salvation. To be sure the die has been cast and it's only a matter of time before the overthrow actually takes place. But until that moment, God is reaching out to them, calling them to repent. There's still that opportunity for them to repent if they will only listen to God's messenger. And if they do that, then disaster will be averted. We see from verses 9 to 15 that God's judgment is comprehensive. It seems to me that some of the scariest verses in the Bible are in Amos 3, for in very a very stark way they show how easy it is to be blind to the reality of our situation and the consequences of sin that we so easily forget. The people had confidence in all the wrong things and uh, verses 9 to 15 show just how misplaced their confidence was. Amos is called to Ashdod in Egypt to stand as expert witnesses to the sin of the Israelites would have had a dramatic effect on his listeners. Both of these nations were known for their callous imperialism and subjugation of helpless peoples. Just imagine pagans condemning God's people for their wickedness. Who would have believed it was possible? But it was the wickedness of the people themselves that made it possible. Yet they had confidence in the fact that, well, they were enduring a peace, a time of peace and stability and security. Their fortresses were strong. They were all doing well in business and so on. And they just assumed that because of that, that, that was somehow God's blessing on them. And that if God was blessing them, they must be doing okay. God must be overlooking all the other things that they were doing wrong. But it seems not. The time of Amos wasn't just a time of peace and prosperity. The rich and the powerful have amassed wealth and they've lived opulent lifestyles. But they've done that all at the expense of the poor, the weak and the marginalised in society. And the rich and the powerful in society did this because they were confident that they were safe in their strongholds. But God saw what they were doing. God heard every word. He saw every act of oppression and he was calling them to account for it. By the time God is finished with them, there will only be a few scraps of their wealth left, a bit of a bed and a couch to point to what once was. No matter how strong and secure we may think we are, things can change suddenly, overnight, to reverse our situation. On the 9th of November 1989, millions of people around the world watched in amazement as the Berlin Wall came down. I was fortunate enough to go earlier this year to, uh, to see uh, the Berlin Wall, what remains of it. But since 1961, it had been a powerful symbol of the differences between Western and Eastern Europe. And it was built as much to keep the people of East Germany in as it was to keep the decadent Westerners out. It was a powerful, 
imposing and impregnable symbol of the power and authority of the East German communist government. Yet, very suddenly, almost with no warning, the people rose up and tore it down. When God, the Lord of history, determines that something will happen, then it will happen, no matter how unlikely it may seem. And when our security is based on something other than God, the reality is that we have no security, that what we are experiencing is a false security. And if God decides to remove that thing that we are trusting in, what will we do then? In verse 14, Amos shows how their false hopes in religion even will not save them from the coming judgment. I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. The very fact that there are altars at Bethel is an indictment on the people of Israel. It's a sign of Israel's idolatry. If the house of false worship will be destroyed, then so too will the worshipper. Grasping the horns of the altar was a means of escaping punishment, very similar to the idea of sanctuary. But the horns will be cut off and so there will be no possibility of escape. Furthermore, if there are no horns on the altar, there will be nowhere for the priest to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice. In other words... When the horns of the altar are cut off at God's judgment, there will be no possibility of atonement for their sins. In many ways, this is no different from the attitude of people today who think that because they prayed a prayer years ago or because they come to church every week, um, that somehow they say, you know, they say their prayers every day, whatever, that somehow that means they're safe. The truth is that religion cannot save us any more than wealth, power or privilege can. And so it's pointless to trust in it. God's judgment is comprehensive. No idolatry will escape. The house of worship, the house of ivory, the summer house, the winter house, all the great houses which ought to have been monuments to their faithfulness have become monuments to the nation's corruption and so will be destroyed. An important lesson of Amos in general, in chapter 3 in particular, is that we can easily forget that we can God can turn and be our enemy, exactly as he says in Isaiah 63.10. The people of Israel had plenty of warning. The terms of the covenant they made with God stated clearly those consequences. Faithfulness would lead to protection and blessing. Unfaithfulness would lead to judgment. You know, in the movie The Matrix, Neo is given a choice between taking a red pill or a blue pill. If he takes the blue pill, he'll stay in dreamland, in the false reality of The Matrix. If he takes the red pill, he'll wake up and see the world as it truly is. The point is, of course, is that he has a choice. It's entirely his choice, but the red pill or the blue pill, whatever his choice is, has consequences. Is an effect and cause. And so it is with us. We can walk faithfully in the way of Jesus or we can reject him and go our own way. It's our choice. But there are consequences. That all choices have consequences. One leads to judgment and the other leads to life. 
when we go our own way, we condemn ourselves. And yet God is merciful and loving and gives us every opportunity to turn around, to return to him, to be reconciled. He will not force us. The choice is ours. And I pray that we will all choose wisely. But know this. God will not turn a blind eye to our sinfulness. And in his love and mercy for us, he calls us to return to him. Even right now in this moment. And if we steadfastly refuse to do that, well, we condemn ourselves to his judgment. Thanks for listening. And please, choose wisely.